Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Thank you, Rebecca and Linnea and team. That was awesome. And uh, just like usual, just like usual, but somehow better than usual. Hey, um, how are you all doing? All right. <laughs> Gentlemen, I, uh, I'm, I'm awesome. I am doing really well because I heard geese this week. And yes, can I get an amen? Yeah. There we are. Geese are awesome. We, we know that when we hear geese the first time, we've only got one blizzard left. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, maybe not this time. Hopefully not this time. We'll see. We'll see. Anyways, I, I love geese. And, and when, they, when they arrive, I get pumped. And so I'm pumped this morning. Um, this morning, as Ryan mentioned uh, in his prayer, we're going to be carrying on in our, our uh, look at Mark the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at chapter 6. Now, normally we've been just going through it section by section, not necessarily uh, chapter by chapter, but today we're going to actually take on the whole chapter of Mark uh, 6. And, and so that's going to be a, a bit of a pace, so we're going to have to move it along here. It's a busy chapter, um, and sometimes when you look at it, first you might think it's rather eclectic. Uh, Jesus comes into his hometown, and Mark talks about that a little bit. And then all of a sudden, we're finding out about the demise of John the Baptist, and and then Jesus is feeding 5,000, and then he's walking out to the disciples on the water. And so it seems like we're just kind of scattered all over the place. But maybe there's more of a connection than we think. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look briefly at each one of these sections, And then we're going to come back and look at the overarching message that I think that Mark has for us with regard to discipleship. And this morning, as we look at these sections, and even as we look at the whole of the chapter, this isn't going to be exhaustive in any way, shape, or form. And I'd encourage you, go home, read this for yourself, continuing to unpack it as just God opens it up to us and as he reveals it to us, what he, all that he has to say, uh, because there's so much more here. But before we begin, let's just pray quickly and ask God to come and speak to us, and then we'll dive in. Father, this morning again, we stop and acknowledge you as God. And this morning, as God, I would pray that you would come, Lord, and that you would speak to us, that you would speak into the lives of each one of us here, that you would demonstrate yourself to us, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would know you in a new way, that we would understand our purpose as your followers better today for what we read from your word, that we would be motivated then to be those people that you are calling us to, that we would be different as we go out this morning having met with you. And so I pray these things now in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. Okay, to this point, 
in the book, we've seen that Jesus has started his ministry and he's left home and he's headed out and he's been traveling around the region and he's been in different villages and in different places preaching and teaching. He's been doing miracles. He's been casting out demons. And his following is growing and it's just starting to blossom and bloom. Things are really happening. And all of a sudden, Jesus decides that it's time for him to head back home to Nazareth. And so he takes his disciples and off they go. And as he comes home to Nazareth, it starts off much like we've come to expect in the preceding chapters. Jesus arrives and he heads for the synagogue. We could have predicted that. And there he begins to teach. And sure enough, it says the people were amazed, just like we've been hearing all the way so far. So it's same old, same old. But this time, actually not so much. Verse 3 tells us how differently this actually is playing out than what has been happening before. It paints the reception of the people in a whole different light. Note this from verse 3. The people look at Jesus and they refer to him as this man. This man. They don't even dignify him with the use of his name. And it's not a question that they don't know him, that he's somehow a stranger, because they recognize a bunch of other things about him, so they know exactly who he is. But they don't dignify him with the use of his name. They refer to him somewhat derisively as this man. This man that does all this teaching. This man that's doing all these works. Then, for his readers, Mark says that some people are calling him the carpenter. The carpenter. And for his Jewish audience, that wouldn't have been such a bad thing. They would have understood that as noble. He had a trade. He, had, he was a working man. That was a good thing. But for the Gentiles that are reading this, well, they would understand it far differently. He was just a laborer. And there's some derogatory connotations that are associated with that. And not to be left out, Mark refers then to Jesus as Mary's son for his Jewish crowd that are reading. And the Jewish people at the time would have understood that as derision because that was a paternalistic society. That was a paternalistic culture where your value was traced to your father. And so you would normally be referred to as the son of your father. In this case, it would have been Joseph's son. But no, here the people refer to Jesus again as Mary's son. And in this instance, there's even just a hint of illegitimacy associated with their identification. And to make sure that we don't miss the point, then Mark ends it by saying that the people took offense to Jesus. Now, 
We read this today. And the danger is that we focus here on the unbelief of the people. And we judge them. What, what, what do you, what's wrong with you guys? Don't you recognize this is Jesus? Not just the carpenter. Not just Mary's son, but God. But really, are we that different? Are we that different? Maybe, maybe we haven't written Jesus off. But how long has it been since you've taken a fresh, objective look at who Jesus is in your life? How long has it been since we've stood back and reckoned about Jesus' true identity? Has our faith in Jesus become so limited and so familiar, so comfortable, that now he's just Jesus, no longer God. Rather than engaging with him and allowing him to speak into our lives and change us by his teaching and his preaching as he leads and guides us, have we put him instead in a nice, familiar and comfortable box where he can no longer do any miracles in our lives? Moving on, let's look at Mark's account of the death of John the Baptist. We'll skip to there. Mark hasn't mentioned anything about John since chapter 1, where we found out that John had been imprisoned by Herod. But here, we find out about his demise at the hands of King Herod. In short, Herod had married his brother's wife, Herodias, which was a no-no. That was a bad thing. And unlike a lot of other people of the day, John didn't hesitate to point this fact out to Herod. More than a few times, he brought this fact to Herod's attention. What you're doing, Herod, is wrong. This is violating all the laws. This is stepping out of what you're supposed to be doing. This is way outside the bounds. And as a result of that, Herodias, Herod's wife, was nursing a grudge against John. She was upset. So Herod responds by throwing John in prison, first of all. But that wasn't good enough for Herodias. She wants John dead. He has really ticked her off. By calling her into question. And Herod into question in what they're doing. So one day, opportunity presents itself as Herod's throwing himself a birthday party. He's got all the mucky mucks in his administration there. And in the course of the festivities, Herodias' daughter, Salome, comes in. And she dances for them. And one thing you can know for certain, she's a way better dancer than I'll ever be. 
Because she does such a good job that that Herod takes a really ill-advised step and he makes an oath. He and his officials have been so impressed at the dancing, really, at the dancing, that he pledges to her up to half his kingdom, whatever she'd like, whatever her wish is. And Salome goes out and conspires with her mother, comes back and asks for the head of John the Baptist immediately on a platter. Two things quickly here. Note, first of all, how again, John is foreshadowing Jesus. First, he foreshadowed Jesus in his message. But secondly, now, John is foreshadowing Jesus in his death. As they both are sent to their death by an unrighteous leader who turned their back on Jesus knowing better. Second, note also the devastating effect of social and peer pressure. Herod recognized that John was righteous and holy, we're told in verse 20. But in verse 26, on account of his concern over his image in front of his officials all gathered around him, and as a result of his fear in his relationships with Herodias and Salome, He turns his back on John and John's message and sends him to his death. How often do we succumb to our social pressures and our fears in the relationships around us and turn our backs on God? We, we can't even pray, bow our heads and pray in restaurants is now because that would be awkward. I, I don't need that. We show up at the water cooler at work and the conversation goes off the rails and we don't step up into that. We laugh along with the joke. Because I don't want to stand out. I don't want to make this uncomfortable. We go to school. Somebody's trashing faith, trashing church. And we just agree. Hoping that they don't find out that I've been known to actually participate in that. Herod looks like such a bad guy, but he's such a reflection of you and I today. And we need to learn from that. Next, let's move to the account of the feeding of the 5,000. Hoping to get some rest. Jesus and the disciples have been ministering. We've just seen that they've come back and reported back on all the things that they've been doing. And 
they've been busy. It's been a busy ministry season, and they're, and they're just hoping to get some rest. So Jesus loads them in the boat, and they're headed across the lake to this remote region, this wilderness area where they can get some R&R, some peace and relaxation. But the people anticipate where they're headed, and they actually beat them there which I'm told by geographers that you can actually do without the proper sailing conditions, optimal sailing conditions. If you're intent on it, you can by foot get all the way around faster than you can get across by lake. And so the people show up and they're, they're sitting there on the shore as Jesus and the disciples roll up at the dock. And it says that when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that that would not have been my reaction, I'm sure. I would have been torqued. I'm just trying to get a little bit of, of a break. I just need a bit of a rest here. Can, can you give a guy some space? Just, just a little bit. Just for a little while. But Jesus looks out and has compassion because he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. He looks at these people that are lost, that are wandering aimlessly through life, not understanding where they should be going, or how they can get there. And so he jumps out of the boat and begins to teach them. Now, this section has all kinds of parallels, all kinds of parallels with the story of God leading the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. You'll remember from that story, That they went through the desert. They went through the wilderness. And here too now, they're out in this remote area, this wilderness. So the settings are similar. And just as God was leading the children of Israel by day in a cloud by cloud, and at night by fire, Jesus gets out of the boat and he begins to teach and guide and lead the people. And then, just as God did way back then, Out in the middle of nowhere, he provides miraculously for the people by giving them manna and quail. And now Jesus here at this point miraculously provides for all these people's needs by multiplying five loaves and two fishes. Add to that that through Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God has repeatedly prophesied that he is going to send his people a shepherd from the line of David. And that God himself would also come and be their shepherd and feed them. So again, for anyone that's been doing the math and paying attention here, The parallels are just overwhelming. The evidence is just insurmountable.
Jesus and God. God and Jesus interwoven. This, this miracle is, in fact, probably the most preeminent of all Christ's miracles. It's generally regarded as preeminent in all of his miracles, not only for its sheer scope in the number of people that it affected, 5,000 men plus women and children, but also in terms of the direct parallel between Jesus and God. It's just set out right in front of the people. Do the math. God, Jesus, one. Of course, the disciples are so fixated on the problem of how to feed these 5,000 guys that they aren't doing that math. And in that, so often aren't we just like them again. We focus on our problems. We come to the issues in our lives and we look at those things and we fixate on them. We see the problem. And in so doing, we forget to focus on who is with us. And rather than focusing on what we don't have, we should be focusing on what we do have. The little though it may be. And bringing that to God. And allowing Him to take that little and to multiply it. And to provide for us a way through the challenges. On account of his ability to help us to navigate. Last, quickly, let's look at Jesus as he comes walking to the disciples on the water. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus again hustles the disciples off in the boat for Bethsaida while he goes to pray. Whenever God goes to pray, whenever Jesus goes to pray in the book of Mark, always pay attention because something significant is coming next from him in terms of his revelation of himself. Then just before dawn, Jesus heads out after them. And they're struggling against a storm. It says that the winds are strong. And they are straining to make any kind of, a pro- any kind of progress. When all of a sudden they see Jesus walking on the water. And they think he's a ghost. And they freak out. But right away, Jesus speaks to them. And comes over and gets in the boat and the storm calms. Clearly, Jesus is demonstrating himself and his divinity again to his disciples. But the disciples are still so busy compartmentalizing Jesus and trying to fit him into their world that they don't see him yet for who he is. We look at the disciples and we wonder how they can't get it. How they haven't put it together. But aren't we again guilty of the same? Rather than viewing the events and the circumstances of our lives in terms of Jesus, we keep trying to understand and confine Jesus into the shape of the events and the circumstances of our lives. And rather than adjusting our lives to Him, we keep trying to make Him adjust to us. As we try to fit Him into our little world. 
So as we come to Mark 6, we see that within each section, there's lots for us to learn and to apply for ourselves. But throughout the chapter, Mark is also speaking to us on a broader context, in the overarching subject of our discipleship. Jesus approaches this directly in verses 7 to 13. There we see his approach with the disciples pivots all of a sudden. And we need to understand this section and then the events of the rest of the chapter around it. Starting in verse 7, read with me. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bed, sorry, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The first thing that we need to know here, the first thing that we need to understand is that every bit as much as Jesus sent out his disciples, then he is sending out you and I as his disciples today. He is sending us out into the world to testify on his behalf. Mark told us that this was Jesus' intent in chapter 3. That it was Jesus' plan then, as he called the twelve specifically, that they were to be with him, and that then he would send them out. But now, here it is. It's begun. So this is a crucial aspect of God's intentions for you and I. His intention is to send us out. As followers of Jesus Christ then, we need to be thinking out every day, all day, throughout the events of our day, watching for the opportunities that He gives for us to speak into the world on His behalf. We need to be thinking out. More specifically, we need to be serving the world around us. Second, as we go, we need to remember that we go with Christ's authority. He doesn't just send us out. He sends us out with His authority, not as authoritarians note. He doesn't send us out as authoritarians where we can ignorantly dictate to the world around us about what's right and what's wrong and how this should be and pay attention to me because I've got it all figured out. Not as authoritarians, but with, with his authority, which is to say that we go out as Christ's ambassadors and emissaries. We're his plenipotentiaries conducting spiritual business on his behalf and with his authority. 
And from that, we need to understand that we can have confidence as we go. This isn't some middle management memo. This is a directive from the boss. Go with my authority. And we can go out with confidence knowing that we are doing exactly what God has called us to do. We don't have to second guess it. We don't have to doubt it. We can go with confidence as we speak on his behalf with his authority. Third, we need to recognize that we travel light. That we have to go light. Which is the point here twofold. Number one, that we first be ready. That we be ready. So often we miss the mission because we're so busy trying to be prepared. Right? Well, I'd go, but I better make sure that the house is clean because heaven forbid that anybody come over while I'm gone and find it dirty. That wouldn't look good. Well, I'd go, but I haven't learned enough yet. There's still a lot of questions that I don't have answers for. So I'm obviously not prepared. I'd better make sure the dinner's in the oven, because if Wally gets home and it's not in the oven, there's going to be trouble. Right? We come up with all these excuses. Well, I'd go, but I've got to get that work at the office finished. I want my desk tidied up. I'd go, but I really need to get my retirement in order. I need to have that in place. And as a result, we miss the missions because we're so busy trying to be prepared. Jesus says, pack light. Don't get bogged down on all the preparations. Take a staff. Throw on a pair of sandals. Take a shirt. Not two. And secondly, that speaks to us that as we go, we rely on God and God alone. Not on our preparations and or the provisions that we take with us. As we go on this mission, our reliance is based on Him. It's dependent on Him. And as we show up ill-prepared, without the, the proper provisions with us, He shows up and provides for us anyway, allowing us to accomplish the mission, regardless to what we have or haven't brought. Regardless about what we have or haven't prepared. Because we rely on Him. The fact is, is that we can't be prepared enough or we can't pack enough anyway. We don't know the circumstances that we're going into. We don't know what's going to be required of us. We'd be towing trailers after trailer after trailer if we knew everything that God was going to call us to in every situation that he was going to lead us into, we can't be prepared enough. We can't pack enough provisions. The disciples serve as prime example. Think back. Up to this point throughout the book of Mark already, all we have seen is the disciples more or less messing up 
getting it wrong more often than they're getting it right. But Jesus comes along and says, time to go. Time to go. Off you go. And they do. And sure enough, they come back successful because they relied on Christ. Fourth, our message as we go is repentance. Repentance. Church family, we can't sugarcoat or water down the gospel. We've got to get out of that trap. We've, we've, made, we've made the gospel into some sort of a, a moral guide, a behavioral pattern. And in so doing, we've neutered it. The fact is, we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and that's our message. Repent from our sin. Turn from our wicked ways. Acknowledge God and rely on Him. Put your faith in Him. And that message, more often than not, requires a conversation. Awkward, though it may be, we need to say something. We can go out and do good deeds all day long, but that's not the extent of what God is calling us to take to the people around us. Sooner than later, we need to stand up and say something. Calling people to repent and to turn to God. Now, what Mark tells us in this little section isn't the extent of it. It doesn't end here, just in verses 7 to 13. As we look back at the sections around it, we also see him continuing to speak to us about discipleship there. From Jesus' trip back to Nazareth, quickly we've got to go. We need to know to anticipate rejection and often where we might expect at least. As Jesus comes into his hometown, he encounters rejection. And he says this in verse 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his, in his own home. As we go out with a message that is so important, it's natural for us to want to share that so much with those that are closest to us, our friends, our family, our sons, our daughters, our parents, our spouses. But it's here that we're often going to experience rejection on account of our familiarity to these people as they dismiss us. Who is this Doug guy coming with this message? I grew up with him. He's a knob. Who is this Doug guy? I changed his pampers. This can't be of any significance at all. He's, got, he's off his rocker. We need to anticipate rejection from where we might least expect it and where it will most often hurt the most. From the account of John the Baptist, we need to know that there is a cost to discipleship. Following Jesus Christ will demand a cost from each one of us. We've got to know that. 
We got to be prepared for that. Verse 27 says, so he immediately, this is Herod, immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John, in, and beheaded John in the prison. I think church leaders have become remiss over the last many years in allowing for, if not propagating the idea, that following Jesus is somehow a safe and comfortable pursuit. Bunk. John stands for us today as evidence to the contrary. And very shortly, Jesus will as well. The fact is, our mission stands in direct opposition to the conventional wisdom and the forces that are at work in this world. And as such, we had best anticipate paying a price for the mission that we are on and the message that we bring. Commentator Donald English said this, with all his, this is all This is speaking about Jesus. With all his evident power and perception, Jesus goes steadfastly to Jerusalem and to death because the realities of evil and goodness, hate and love, require it. Let me read this for you again. With all his evident power and perception, Jesus goes steadfastly to Jerusalem and to death because the realities of evil and goodness, hate and love, require it. When we have evil and goodness at work in this world, when there is love and hate that we encounter day by day all around us in this world, we know that there's going to be a problem because evil and good don't mix. And love and hate don't coexist. And so we better expect to pay a price as we come with a message that speaks into that, as we Speak to evil as we promote goodness. As we work for love and against hate, there's going to be a price for us to pay. From the feeding of the 5,000, note our responsibility as, as disciples. Verse 37 says, this is Jesus speaking, but he answered, you give them something to eat. The disciples had come to Jesus with what seemed like a pretty rational idea. There's all these people here. It's getting late, Lord. How about we disperse them and send them off so that they can find something to eat in the villages around the area? And Jesus replies to them. He looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. This morning we need to understand that we are God's agents of redemption, both spiritually and physically in the world around us. We have been deputized to offer what we have with compassion and in service to those in need, both spiritually and physically. We have to help. We have to go there. We have to be His hands and His feet. We have to step into that gap. Because He's deputized us now. To fill in for him in this time, in this place where he's put us. And as Jesus comes walking to us, walking to his disciples on the water, we need to be assured of his presence with us. 
Verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. And Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, pass by them. What? He was about to pass by them. What's up with that? Well, I think we find our answer in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, whenever the phrase pass by is used in relation to God, it is in reference to God demonstrating his presence to his people. We see that specifically in regard to Elijah, in regard to Job, and with Moses. Mark uses the same words here. As Moses uses in uses in Exodus 33, which you recall we talked about in January. Moses was afraid that God wasn't going to go with him because he was angry with the people. They had made a big boo-boo. And God was angry. And Moses was freaked out. He wanted to know that God was going to go with him, and he said, you've got to go with me. If you're not going to go with me, don't send me. I'm not going. And God says, I'll go with you. Moses says, show me that you're going to, give me a sign that you're going to go with me. Show me your glory. And God says to him, I will pass by you. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand so that you don't buy, but I will pass by you so you will know that I am with you. Just as then, now, Jesus passes by us as his disciples. So that we will know that he is with us. That he is present with us. And that he is going with us. Into the challenges that he is sending us into as his disciples. As we speak on his behalf. As he sends us into storms in our lives. He is with us. Church family, wherever he sends you. Whatever storms that you encounter. Whatever challenges that you are facing. Jesus comes walking to you on the water. Demonstrating himself to you. And assuring you of his presence with you today through Mark. You are not alone. God himself is with you and will be with you every step of the way. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, Lord, may we know you more. May our understanding of you be that much bigger and more complete today. And God, may it now change our lives that we wouldn't continue to try and fit you into our box, that we wouldn't leave you as a familiar part of our little simple spiritual world, but that we would understand you as God and that we, we would allow you now to teach us and to lead us and that we would be willing and obedient to go so that you would be able to take us and use us to share you with the world around us who are so badly in need. And God, now I ask and I pray that by your spirit that you would motivate us and enable us, empower us and embolden us to go for Jesus' sake, and in his name I pray. Amen. You've been so good. Have a donut.